Well, we are going to begin our study in the book of Colossians. And uh, this is going to be a great book because it really pertains to the time in which we live in. And so I, I wanted to share a couple of things as we get into this. First of all, hopefully you have your outline ready. You'll need that. You have your pen. And uh, this is going to be by way of introduction today. Well, hopefully we'll get through the first 14 verses. But um, Paul, the apostle, as uh, you, you may know, would, would go on these missionary journeys. And uh, there, in, in, uh, there on your outline, the very first verse it says, it's talking about Paul as he came to this town of Ephesus, and uh, he stays there in Ephesus, and it says, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so one of the things that we find is that Ephesus is in the country that we'd say modern-day Turkey. We have, we have a map here. And uh, if you can see over by the coast, there is Ephesus. Does everybody see that? And then uh, you go about 100 miles inland and you see the word Colossae. Does everybody see that? That's, uh, and this would be those who lived in Colossae were called the Colossians. And so next to that, literally one mile away from Colossae is this little town called Laodicea, which you would know uh, if you were part of our Revelation study. So what's going on in uh, Laodicea is also at times going on in Colossae. There's also another little town that we'll talk about somewhere uh, along the way as we're in in this book of Colossians, and uh, that's going to be Hierapolis. And they're all about a mile apart. So um, there on your outline, the next verse, when Paul concludes this book in chapter 4, he's going to say, when this letter is read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So the idea is Paul's sending a letter to the Laodiceans. We don't have that letter, but we do have this letter. So Paul says, make sure you swap those back and forth. So it'd be kind of like us in the church down the street that's literally a mile down the street. And uh, so if Paul were to write us, we'd walk down the street, hand it to them, they'd hand it to us, and we would read it to our church. So another thing that's important, uh, there on the map you see that that's Ephesus and Colossae is about 100 miles inland. Paul never actually made it to Colossae. Uh, So there in your outline, uh, we'll see when we get to chapter 2, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea and for those who have not personally seen my face, and I've underlined that. So Paul is writing to a church that he never actually went to. He he didn't start this church. So uh, how did that church start? Well, the next verse there on your outline, it says, you learned it from Epaphras, and uh, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. So Epaphras somehow was in Ephesus. He hears the gospel, learns some things, comes all the way back to Colossae and in uh, Laodicea, and a church is born there. And then not only that, there's another guy that we'll talk about later on when we get to chapter 4, and uh, it says, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to the church, which is uh, the church in your house. And uh, so what we're going to find is at this time, the church would meet in a house, and it was started, and this is very important, I want you to write this down, it was started by a lay ministers, two lay ministers. And the idea, when we say lay minister, um, you know, we talk about the laity, that would be people who are going to church. So a lay minister would be somebody who's not a professional pastor, a professional minister, and yet God uses these two guys to establish a church that, uh, that, that uh, is... is uh, well, well, we're going to find out it's a, it's a pretty wonderful church. Now, when Paul writes this letter, 
He has since left Ephesus. This church is about five years old at this point when Paul writes this letter. And so Paul finds himself in Rome and he's now in prison in Rome. And uh, that's going to be important because at the end of this letter in chapter 4, Paul's going to ask the Colossians to do something. I put that there in your outline. He's in prison in, in Rome. And, and uh, just, just in case you're wondering, prisons 2,000 years ago were not known for, for their, um, for their um, uh, they, they weren't nice. What's a better word of saying? They were not hospitable. That's good. So these, these were not like resorts or anything. Not that prison is a resort. But uh, whatever you think of as bad in prison, it was worse. So Paul's in prison. And so when he writes the Colossians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. And uh, so I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. Paul is writing to this church, but he's currently in prison in Rome. And so he's going through a very difficult time. Now, many people uh, consider the book of Colossians as Paul's most profound work. And uh, there's so much in these four little chapters. And I I brought a little illustration to show you what I mean by by it being profound. Last year, you and I, we began in September of last year, and we went through 1 Corinthians. Everybody remember that? And uh, so one of the commentaries that I love to use is the NIV Life Application Commentary. I like it because it's very good, but it's also from a slightly different theological perspective than than we would traditionally hold here. And so I I like to always uh, look at other perspectives. So that book, 1 Corinthians, was 16 chapters long. We took months and months to go through it. There was so much in it. So and, and the commentary was 352 pages. Now, Colossians is only four chapters long. But because there's so much in Colossians, and it's only four chapters long, same commentary just on the book of Colossians is actually 50 pages longer than uh, what you'd find for 1 Corinthians, and it's only four chapters. Every line in this book that we're going to study over the next few weeks could be a standalone teaching. We're not going to do that because we want to study other things before Jesus comes back. But... (laughs) But you could spend a long time in this, in this book. So there is a crisis in this book, and uh, in, this, in this church. False teachers had started to come into the church. And as they are coming in, they're saying very strange things. So Epaphras, who was the minister who started, he, he hears these things going on. And so he says, I need to find Paul and uh, get some clarification. So he heads from Turkey all the way over to Rome. And so what we're going to find is he, as he talks with Paul, uh, we're going to find that this church deals with heresies that are coming into the church. So these are going to be the same issues that you and I face in, in, our, in our church experience today. One of the issues is going to be legalism. They're going to take, uh, what, in this case, the Old Testament rules and rituals, and they're going to say, it's great that you found Jesus, but if you're going to be really spiritual, here's a list of rules and regulations that you have, that you have to keep. And, and I personally grew up in a church that said, it's great that you found Jesus, but now here's a whole other set of lists and rules that you have to keep if you're going to really follow Jesus. 
Then uh, we're going to find that there's what's called the Gnostic her- heresy. Gnostic means knowledge. And the Gnostics held that they had se- uh, secret or deeper knowledge. So they would say, it's great that you've found Jesus, but if you're really going to go deep into your spiritual walk, you need to get my teaching, uh, which is the seven secrets you know, that have been revealed to me. And they would, they would uh, I don't actually have that teaching, but if you want to get that, I'll think of something. But but the idea is that they would say, it's great that you found Jesus, but if you're going to go deeper, uh, I've been, uh, I've, God has revealed certain secrets to me, and I will give them to you, but you have to follow my teaching. So it wasn't just following Jesus, it was following Jesus and, and that would be the Gnostic heresy. And, and then we're going to find that others, as they came into the church, they would say, well, it's great that you're following Jesus, but you know we, we feel that if we bring in this other religious experience, uh, that will enhance your following Jesus. And so they would point to what we might call Eastern religions to bring things in. And they wouldn't deny Jesus, they would just say it will enhance. And Paul's going to deal with that. Then we're going to find that there were the philosophers who came in. The philosophers would come in, and instead of using God's word, they would use logic, but they would come to very different conclusions than than what God's word would conclude. One of the philosophies that we're going to deal with is going to be the philosophy of asceticism. Now, asceticism held that you deny all anything that gratifies the flesh. So their mantra would be, you know, do not touch, do not taste, do not eat. So anything that you like, basically, they'd say we stay away from that. Paul's going to deal with that. And uh, we're going to find that that might come in conflict with some of our uh, earlier church upbringing. So all of these are suggesting that if you don't follow their teaching, then you're not really going to be spiritual and, and uh, if you don't follow their teaching, then you probably aren't a Christian to begin with because they have what you need above just needing Jesus. So the emphasis in this book on your outline of Colossians, we're going to see this page after page. Well, there's only four pages, but we're going to see it almost verse after verse. Uh, it, it says this first. So in chapter two, it's going to say, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is, deity means God. And so in him all of deity dwells in bodily form. And so we're going to talk about, if you've been here for any length of time, all Christians hold that Jesus is God. And everybody else holds that Jesus is not God. So he's going to drive that point home. Jesus is God. But then he's also going to say, and in him you have been made complete. So you don't have to look for something above or extra. It's all in Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about following him. And when he says you have been made complete, we're going to find that in each chapter there's going to be this emphasis on what you and I would call eternal security. Because you have been made complete. The idea is it's all in the past tense, you already have it. And so uh, you didn't think it up, you didn't generate it, it's already there for you. And then another, uh, another verse that we're going to see in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, we won't get to it today, but it's on your outline. It says, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself, and I want you to underline, will come to have first place in everything. Jesus is to have first place in everything, not the philosophers they were listening to, not the legalism that they were buying into. Everything is about Jesus, it's for Jesus, and it's following him. And so we'll talk about that 
as we travel through. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1, and uh, I'll read the first two verses. We'll, we'll, we'll read and then we'll unpack it as we go, and hopefully we'll get down to uh, verse 14. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and to Timothy our brother, Timoth- and Timothy our brother, Timothy is there with Paul, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, one of the things you might want to do is underline faithful brethren who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what it means to be apostle or the intro. He says grace and peace. Paul always says that. Uh, apostle means one sent. Paul is unique. He's sent by God to do something very, very special. Now, um, in verse 2, sadly, some of your translations leave out the word saints. And uh, so I've put this there in your outline. It's in the original language, and so it, it, it should be there. It says, to the saints and the faithful brethren who are in Christ, who, brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae. And uh, also in that, there on your outline, if you just underline the brethren who are in, underline that word in, and uh, who are at they are in Christ, and, and that's their position, but they are at Colossae. And uh, so that's, that's a, we'll talk about that later. Now, when Paul says saints, he never sees saints as a separate group. The, the, any, anytime Paul refers to believers, he just calls all believers saints. Uh, whether you are, uh, consider yourself a good believer or not so good believer, if you're a believer, he would call you saints. But here, he also mentions what uh, he calls the faithful brethren. And I had you underline that. Did everybody underline faithful brethren? Now that's important because this church really is faithful to the Lord. And uh, because they are faithful to the Lord, Paul doesn't have to deal with the issues that he dealt with when he wrote to the Corinthian church. So if you're a part of our study through the Corinthian church, you'll remember Paul has to say things like, could, could you stop sleeping with prostitutes? Remember that? Uh, could you stop sleeping around? How about communion? Think you guys could stop getting drunk at communion? Uh, he doesn't have to say, could you stop suing each other over little things in court? And so he doesn't have to do any of that with this particular church. They really love the Lord. They're faithful. The challenge here is that some false teachers are coming into the church and they're disturbing the faith of, of the believers. So verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God. Now I've underlined, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now uh, a few things, and we'll just highlight this and then we'll move on. But Paul prayed for this church, although he'd never met them. And what's also interesting is that Paul is in prison. He's in prison. And we learn something about Paul and what it means to be spiritually mature. This is just a characteristic of some spiritual maturity. It says, while in prison, there in your outline, I put the word difficulty. Prison, that's kind of difficult, wouldn't you say? I mean, you know, it's, so while in, in prison or difficulty, Paul prayed, and I want you to just write down for others, for others. It's, it's a sign of spiritual maturity when you can look beyond your own difficulty and pray for the needs of other people. And then um, I, I would also say, verse 3, let me read it again. He says, we give thanks to God, and I had you underline that, the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith. And uh, so I, I want you to just write down that here, Paul says, I give thanks to God when I heard about your faith. He doesn't say, I, 
I give thanks to you for your faithfulness. So, so write this down. Paul gives God the credit for their faith. Now, one of the emphasis that we're going to find in this little book is that there's going to be an emphasis on, uh, on the eternal security. And so here, Paul says, I thank God because of your faith. Uh, it's God that's giving them the faith, that's helping them to stand strong. It's not something that they are self-generating that they, they can uh, hold on to. Then verses 4 and 5. Now as I read verses 4 and 5, one of the things that we see in Paul, he loves to use three words together. Faith, hope, and Take a guess. Yeah, love. Faith, hope, and love. So just, just you'll see that trilogy in this. Some of your verses will say a little bit different, but uh, go ahead and underline it where you see it in your verse. Verse 5, or verse 4, he says, Now, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you, and then underline previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth, the gospel. So the first thing that I, I want to highlight here, he says, we heard of your faith in Christ and the love which you had for all the saints. And one of the things that, that you notice here, and, and just go ahead and write this down, that their faith was in Christ Jesus and it was manifested by loving all believers. By loving all believers. Your love for the brethren, your love for the saints. One noticeable sign when somebody is converted and God's Spirit steps into their life, that all of a sudden there is a love for the things of God. One of the things that God loves the most, the thing that God loves the most, is is His children. And uh, so when somebody takes, they receive Jesus Christ and He comes inside, the most noticeable change is all of a sudden there's a love for the things of God, but there's a love for His for his children, his people, which is why Jesus said this on your outline. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That, that's the sign of conversion. There's a love for the people of God. So I, I would just say I'm always suspicious when I encounter somebody who professes to be a believer they profess to be converted, saved, however you might want to term that, but they don't have a love for the people of God. It, it just, just makes me uh, suspicious. I, I don't see that picture anywhere in, in, in the Bible. Also, it's important, it says their faith in Christ Jesus. Their faith was not in an institution. Uh, their faith was in Christ Jesus. You and I live in a generation where people say, you just got to believe, just got to have faith. And he said, what do you have faith in? And they'll say, well, you know, you have, you have faith. You've got to have faith, faith in faith. You've got to just got to believe. Well, your, your faith has to be rooted in something. And so for as believers, our faith is in Christ Jesus. Our faith is not in faith. And uh, so Paul highlights that. But then the other thing that I want to point out in this little uh, verse 5, he says, because their faith, oh, let me read verse 4, uh, you heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And in my translation, it says now because, here's why, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, when it says their hope is laid up for them in heaven, they are heaven-focused. Their, their hope is in heaven. 
and it's laid up for them in heaven. Once again, this is going to be uh, just a, a reference to the, the eternal security that they have. Whatever it is that they have received has caused them to put their hope in heaven, which is laid up. Most of your Bibles will say laid up. If you look at the word in the original, it says reserved. It's there. It's reserved for you. If you're a believer, that's, that's your hope. Your hope is heaven. Now, that, that's important because um, their hope was laid up in heaven if their hope was that it's all going to work out for them in this lifetime. You know, we all talk about, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, and, and we think that it, as a believer, it all works out for us in this lifetime. But their hope was in heaven. They realized that it doesn't always work out in this lifetime. Has anybody experienced this other than me? It's, it doesn't always work out. Now, here, here's how you know. When you read the New Testament, most of the people that we read about in the New Testament, they did not die of old age. They died as, as martyrs and, and ter- ter- terribly. It did not work out in this life. So their hope was in heaven, not this life. Does that make sense? Does God do cool things in this life? You bet. But our hope is in heaven. Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation. There's your promise. And uh, so but that's... It's, that's just, just how it is. So if your hope, if your hope is in this life, you're going to be very, very frustrated because it doesn't always work out. But then I also wanted to highlight in verse five, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard. Now underline previously heard. That is when Epaphras came and gave them the gospel, he laid it all out for them. They had previously heard that, but now this is you know, previously heard before the false teachers came in and started saying some, some other things. Well, verse 5, the very last line, um, uh, verse 5, he says, uh, the, the very last line it says, which you previously heard, in the word of truth, and that's, that's, that's a, it's an idiom for, for what the scripture would say, and, uh, but, but because the Bible's not written at that point, we're going to not develop that too much. Uh, in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth. And you want to underline that last little part. He says this gospel has been bearing fruit all around the world. Everywhere it goes, people become believers and then their lives are changed. And because people see the change in their lives, God's doing something with his spirit and it continues to bear fruit. There, there's the result. Fruit is always the evidence. The, the evidence that an, an orange tree is an orange tree is the fruit. And that's how you know what it is because of the kind of fruit that it produces. And Paul says this is happening all around the world. So he says, since the day you heard of it, and that would be before the false teachers came in, he says, at, when you first heard of it, you understood the grace of God in all its truth. When you understood God's grace, you understood that it was all reserved in heaven for you. It was a done deal. And you have been made complete in Christ. And we looked at that verse, and we'll look at it in chapter 2. 
So this salvation that you and I have, that we embrace, is something that we can grow in, but we can never add to it. We, we can never maintain it. My kids are my kids because they've been born into my family. They're not my kids because of their behavior. Uh, if, they, if it's had anything to do with their behavior, well, <laughs> I'm going to move on. <laughs> Parents, have you experienced this? Yeah, yeah. I don't see any of my boys here, but about earlier this year, one of the boys was, had some cologne, and he sprays it at the other kid, and it goes in his eyes. And the kid's, ah! So the first kid says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you can spray cologne in my eye. So they spray it back. So you, you're like, Cheryl, were you smoking crack? What, you know, what was going on? Something's not right with this child. I know you've never had experiences like that with your kids, right? All right. So verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is, faithful, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. He also informed us of, uh, of your love in the Spirit. So uh, Paul is endorsing what Epaphras taught them. Now false teachers are coming in and they're in danger of listening to, to the wrong ones. That word learned there in verse 7, you might want to underline just as you learned it. It's a, it's a unique word in the original language and uh, I won't try to pronounce it, but you can see it on your outline. It means to learn and then it means a prize to learn by use and practice. Underline that, to be in the habit of or you know, accustomed to. In those days, discipleship was something that you learned so that you could live out. It was not just you, you came and you learned it so that you had more information. It was learned to live out. The, the modern day equivalent to that would be like medical school. I mean, you, you go to medical school to learn so that you can do. Uh, you don't just go to medical school and after four years of medical school say, okay, and, and then that's it. Uh, you, you learn it to do it. And that's the idea of what, what that word means. Verse 9 through 13. Before we get into that, by the way, has this been interesting so far? Okay, good. Uh, um, 9 through 13, if you're uh, a mom or a dad, this passage, if you memorize just one passage this month, it should be this passage because this is what you want to pray for your spouse. It's what you want to pray for your children. And uh, we'll, we'll see why as we travel through. I'm going to read 9 through 13 and then we'll unpack it as we travel through. Verse 9, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled, and here's what you want to, to memorize, filled with the knowledge, underline that word knowledge, I'll come back to that, of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And the saints of light. And I'll stop right there. That's a great thing to memorize and to pray. That's, that's what we all want in our lives. That's what we want to pray for the people that we love. So verse 9, uh, let me just read verse 9 again. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you 
and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. One of the, the, the things I would just want to highlight and we'll move on, but modern church life is very different than the first century. And one of the things that you'll notice is that when Paul prays for people, and you want to write this down, Paul emphasizes spiritual blessings over material blessings. He felt that them growing spiritually was even more important than God blessing them materially. So that's going to be the the primary focus of his prayer. And Paul says he prays that God fills them. He says that you be filled, verse 9, that you be filled that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is praying that it's God who fills them with the knowledge of his will. The false teachers were saying that the only way you're going to get this, you go to the next level in your spiritual walk is to come and hear it from us, get the secret message. Paul says, no, 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 I'm praying that God fills you with this knowledge. A few moments ago, I said that one of the things that that they were dealing with was the philosophy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism means knowledge. Uh, Gnostic means knowledge. And uh, Gnostics held to a deeper knowledge, a hidden knowledge, kind of a spiritual knowledge. And uh, so Paul, when he uses that word knowledge, he takes that word that they would say, you need the secret knowledge, and they would use the word gnosos, uh, and they would be Gnostics. And uh, so uh, there on your outline, when Paul uses the word knowledge, he uses a slightly different word, and that word is epigenosis. Does everybody see that? That's where you say yes. Okay. And uh, which doesn't mean just knowledge, it means full discernment. Uh, The Thayers would say precise and correct knowledge. So Paul says, they want to give you their knowledge. I'm praying that it's God, not them, it's God and God alone who gives you the epigenosis. So somewhere on your outline, I want you to write the word super knowledge because that's what that means. Whatever God wants to give you, he can give that to you and it's super knowledge. Now then he says in verse 9, he says, pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and uh, then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. When he says spiritual wisdom and understanding, Paul is praying that, that they would be able to know what's important in life from God's perspective, from God's perspective. And so that's what that would be. And so then you come to verse 10, and uh, there on your outline, I want you to write the goal, the goal in that little space. So here's the goal of that spiritual knowledge. Here's the, the goal of, um, of having that wisdom and the knowledge of his will. Here's the goal. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the goal of all this, and I want you to write this down, is to live a life worthy and pleasing to God. Worthy and pleasing to God. You're going to meet people who love to study the deeper things. They love to gather information. But the goal is not more information. The goal is to live a life that's pleasing to God. And so that, that's the goal. And that's what Paul is praying for. So that you will, he says in verse 10, you will walk in a manner 
worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, to please him in all respects. So then the question is, well, how do I know if my life is actually pleasing to God? Well, Paul's going to lay out four ways that we can know that our life is pleasing to God. So uh, verse 10, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in, in all respects. And then the first way that we know, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. So the first way that I can know that my life is pleasing to God is I look at my life and I can say, I'm bearing fruit in every good work. Go ahead and write that down. The idea there is that my faith is not just academic. I'm living it out and people can see. And there's results in my life, not just academic information. And then he goes on in that verse, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. And then he says, and increasing in the knowledge of God. It's interesting, he has bearing fruit before increasing the knowledge of God. But uh, you might want to write down, I'm actively growing in the knowledge of God. There's a hunger in the life of the believer whose life is pleasing to God. There's something inside of them that wants to learn more and more about, about the Lord, more and more about Jesus, more and more about how to please Him. There's a hunger there. And then I've put verse 11 on your outline, and uh, so I'll read it there on your outline. He says, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. And that word there for might is the word dunamis, from where we get our English word dynamite. dynamite. Absolutely. You'll never get it wrong here, so just guess and toss it out there. So dynamite. And then he says, so that you may have great endurance. Now, when we think of endurance, and you see the next word is patience, you go, what's the difference? Well, endurance tends to deal with circumstances. I put that on your outline, didn't I? So, so that tends to deal with circumstances and patience. Patience doesn't deal with circumstances, typically it deals with people. And so Paul says, so you're going to need great power to deal with some of the circumstances that you're going to face, and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. As a believer, there are going to be times when you and I are going to have to just endure some difficult circumstances. I don't like it, But what I found in my life is that God does his deepest work in my life as I walk through a very painful circumstance with him. Am I alone in this? So for whatever reason, he chooses to use that. I don't like it. I just know that that's how it works. Now, sometimes it's difficult people. Does anybody here ever have to deal with difficult people? It's interesting. He says, so I want you to have God's great power as you deal with those difficult people. And so, and, and then it's also important to say, he's writing this in the first century. And uh, so, so this might not resonate so much with us right now, but if you're a Christian in Iraq right now, this also pertains to the people and the circumstances, the persecution that's coming, that, that, that they're facing. And so the only way you're going to be able to stand strong in those very, very difficult times is if God gives you his power. He gives you his power to do that. So one of the things that we notice about a life that's pleasing to the Lord, and you want to write this down, I'm supernaturally empowered in difficult times. You're, you're going to meet some who in uh, difficult times they run from God, and yet you're going to meet others who, it's very hard to explain, but it's in that 
difficult time that they're clinging to the Lord and God's giving them what they need to walk through a very difficult time. Well, another thing that we see that's pleasing to the Lord in verse 11, the very last line of verse 11, he says, all steadfastness and patience, he says, joyously, and most of you will recognize that there, there's not a period. Uh, this, the first few verses here are one long run-on sentence in the original language. And so for most of your Bibles, there won't be a period. The next word will just be giving thanks to the Father, giving thanks to the Father. So it'll be joyously giving thanks to the Father. So another way that we know that our lives are pleasing to the Lord is that we have joy and, and give praise in difficult times. And you want to write that because he attaches that, that you're able to be thankful to the Lord and, and give praise even in difficult times. So um, you know, being, being his and being pleasing to him are, are two very, very different, different things. And then just because we're really running out of time, I'm just going to continue on. And, and we do all of that. We do all that because this is what he has done for us. And very quickly, in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the first thing that we know that he did for us is he qualified us to share in the inheritance. Write that down. There is nothing that you can ever do to add to it. He has done it. He has qualified you to do that. And then in verse 13, it says, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. That means from from Satan. So write this down. He's rescued us from Satan's grasp. If you have the King James, it'll say delivered. So from the domain of darkness, that's from Satan's grasp. And then you go on in verse 13, the third thing that he does is he's rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so go ahead and write the word, transferred us from one kingdom to his kingdom. If you have the King James Version, it says conveyed. And if you have the NIV, it says he's brought us, brought us. That word in the original language, I've used the word transferred there in your outline, just means to transpose, to transfer, to remove from one place to another the change of situation or place. Did you notice in all of those, it's what God has done and not what we've done? And the reason it's all about what God has done, not what we do, is because this book is going to talk about how you can rest in your salvation it's eternal. It's not because of anything that you've done. It's because of everything that he has done. And uh, verse 14, you've closed your Bible, so I'll just read it for you. In whom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a done deal. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to know because the false teachers are coming in and they're trying to shake that in the lives of the believers. With that, I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just driving home the point that it's all about what you have done for us. And, uh, and it's not because of anything that we do, can do, will do, anything that we've brought to the table. It's because you saw us, you loved us, you gave us the faith to believe in you. We responded to that faith and we are forever yours. And so Father, we want to grow in that. We want to bear fruit in that but we realize that, that that's not what makes us yours. It's what you have done that makes us yours. We want to respond to you 
by, by being everything you want us to be. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.